the debates between Apple and their competitors rage on to this day, few can debate the huge impact Steve Jobs had on the world. So it's no wonder that after Steve Jobs passed away in 2011, there was an influx of news and media surrounding the life of the outspoken Apple co-founder and CEO. And so it was shortly after Aaron Sorkin finished working on 2010's The Social Network that he began working on a new movie about yet another innovative technology company. Before Sorkin's film was finished, though, the first of the major motion pictures surrounding Steve Jobs' life was 2013's Jobs, a film which saw Ashton Kutcher portraying Steve Jobs. That film made $35.9 million at the box office, over twice the $12 million it cost to make. Still, it was considered by many critics to be a flop. Then, two years later, another movie was released. This one was simply called Steve Jobs. With a budget of $30 million, it only ended up making about $34.4 million in theaters. When you compare just the box office numbers of the two films, it's clear that 2013's Jobs was a bigger success. And yet, it was 2015's Steve Jobs that drew critical success and went on to rack in awards at the SAG Awards, Golden Globes, BAFTA, and more. The lead roles, played by Michael Fassbender and Kate Winslet, also garnered Oscar nominations at the Academy Awards in 2016. If you listen to the episode on The Social Network, you'll already know how Aaron Sorkin dropped the true story for a good story. So how did he do this time? I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to take a few moments to chat about Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a third-party website that lets you support content creators like me. If you're enjoying this show and want to help me pay for the coffee that I drink while I'm writing the show, or even now as I'm recording, I have a cup of coffee set to the side, you can do that over at patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. There, you can offer whatever you can, from a dollar a month all the way to a million, if, if you really want. But I want to give all my patrons a little extra just to say thank you. So along with some freebies like access to show transcripts that I'll periodically give away, I'll give you a peek behind the creation of each episode, as well as an exclusive first look at what's launching next week. So if you've ever wondered how this show is created or how a podcast gets put together, or if you just want a heads up on what's coming next week so you'll have time to watch the movie before listening to the episode, hop on over to patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And now let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Steve Jobs. The movie begins at the 1984 launch of the Macintosh computer. We're taken behind the scenes where Steve Jobs, who's played by Michael Fassbender, is furious. The focus of his anger is on Andy Hertzfeld, played by Michael Stahlbarg, 
and the fact that the Macintosh computer won't say hello. Joanna Hoffman, who's played by Kate Winslet, suggests that they leave out this little detail. Everything else is working, so why is this a big deal? But Steve insists it's a requirement for the launch. The Macintosh computer has to say hello to the audience. Probably one of the biggest issues comparing the truth to the movie is that the movie makes it seem like the Mac saying hello was the only issue before launch. While the hello demo certainly caused plenty of stress before the launch, in truth, it was just one of a number of problems. One of the bigger problems was actually with an animation that the Macintosh was supposed to play as soon as Steve pulled it out of its bag on stage and plugged it in. Apple engineer Steve Capps is the one who managed to get the animation demo working just before midnight the day before the launch. Capps is hardly in the movie, but is portrayed by actor Anthony Larice for the few moments that he is. In the movie, it's while they're preparing for the launch that we find out about Steve Jobs' daughter, Lisa. Throughout the movie, Lisa is played by three different actresses at different ages. The five-year-old version, which is who we see at the Macintosh launch, is played by Mackenzie Moss. This is also where we find out about Steve's refusal to admit that Lisa is his daughter. Steve continues to berate Lisa's mother, Chrisanne Brennan, who's played by Catherine Waterston, as she's breaking down into tears. Unfortunately, we don't know if this exact conversation happened, but it's highly unlikely to have happened at the Macintosh launch. Still, the truth is that Steve Jobs did deny being the father of Lisa. Chris Ann and Steve met while the two were in high school together in Cupertino, California. This was in 1972. They had an on and off relationship throughout college that ended with Chris Ann falling for someone else named Greg Calhoun. Greg and Chris Ann went to India. Steve actually drove the couple to the airport and then stayed there for about a year together. In 1977, Chris Ann came back to California and back to Steve. The two fell in love for each other again and their relationship started back up. This was about the time that Steve was starting Apple, but in the early days, they stayed together. As Apple began to grow, Steve started spending more and more time on his new company. This meant less and less time at Chrisanne's home. As the summer of 1977 came to a close, Steve and Chrisanne moved in together when they got a house near the Apple office in Cupertino. But this was complicated by the fact that one of Steve's friends moved in with them too. This was Daniel Kotke, one of the very first Apple employees. According to Chris Ann's memoirs called The Bite in the Apple, quote, Steve told me that he didn't want to get a house with just the two of us because it felt insufficient to him. Steve wanted his buddy Daniel to live with him because he believed it would break up the intensity of what wasn't working between us. Our relationship was running hot and cold. We were completely crazy about each other and utterly bored in turns. I had suggested to Steve that we separate, but he told me that he just couldn't bring himself to say goodbye, end quote. Things didn't get better when Chrisanne found out that she was pregnant in October. Again, according to Chrisanne's book, Steve, quote, turned ugly, end quote, when he found out. He continued to distance himself and pour himself into Apple. 
This was never mentioned in the movie, but Christiane was offered an internship at Apple as a graphic designer. But she was afraid of what people would say when they found out she was pregnant with Steve's child, so she turned the position down. Chrisanne worked cleaning houses, something that kept her constantly struggling to pay the bills. Eventually, she went on welfare. Although she asked Steve for money a few times, he always refused. Then, on May 17, 1978, Chrisanne gave birth to a baby girl. A few days after she was born, the 23-year-old Steve Jobs finally came to visit her. Together, the two came up with the name Lisa. Back at the Macintosh launch in the movie, we see five-year-old Lisa mention that she was named after the computer. She's referring to Apple's Lisa computer, which was released in 1983. Michael Fassbender's version of Steve Jobs corrects her. He then goes on to explain that it was a coincidence, nothing more. The Lisa computer, according to Steve, is an acronym for Local Integrated Software Architecture. It's purely a coincidence that Lisa is named Lisa. Just before she leaves the room, the five-year-old Lisa has a line where she comes to the realization that maybe she was named after the computer, and the computer was not named after her. Frustrated, Steve reiterates that it's just a coincidence. It's, it's still heartbreaking to see the disappointment on Lisa's face. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com/tos for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks Earnin. The movie fictionalized the encounters. The basic gist of what they're talking about is true. The Lisa computer was something that Steve was working on back when he helped name Chrisanne's baby girl. Although he never admitted it, it is quite likely that he named Lisa with the computer in mind. But if he did, only Steve knew. At the time of the Macintosh launch, Steve Jobs vehemently denied not only that Lisa was his daughter, but that the Lisa computer was named after her. The movie's first act during the Macintosh launch closes when Andy Hertzfeld finally gets the Hello demo to work. On an unannounced 512K version of the Macintosh, not the 128K version that they're showing on stage. With the Hello demo ready, John Scully, who's played by Jeff Daniels, meets Steve behind stage. They enjoy a glass of 1955 Chateau Margaux, 
together to celebrate the launch, and then they watch Ridley Scott's $1.5 million 1984 Macintosh advertisement. The 128K and 512K that they're referring to is the 128 kilobytes of RAM memory the original Macintosh had. It was upgradable to 512 kilobytes, but you had to solder in the additional memory chips. The details of how it happened are fictionalized for the film, but the basic gist, again, is true. Andy did use a 512K Macintosh, but it wasn't only for the Hello Demo. Most of the other aspects of the demo wouldn't run on the 128K either, so they had to use a more powerful computer to pull it off. Probably the biggest part the movie doesn't show is how nervous Steve Jobs was. The Apple CEO at the time, John Scully, who's played by Jeff Daniels in the film, would later recall the events of that night. This is from an article written by the real John Scully over at CNET many years later. Quote, You may be surprised to learn that as Steve and I stood behind the curtain moments before he was to go on stage, Steve was terrified. I'm scared shitless, Steve whispered to me. This is the most important moment of my entire life. Everything I have dreamed about and worked on for years will actually happen in the next few moments. Steve was standing in the shadows behind the curtain, sneaking a look out at the audience. The room was packed. The first three rows of seats were reserved for the 100-person Mac team. To the right of us was a large platform with probably a dozen TV cameras. Off to the side were another dozen TV cameras. All around the stage area were many more TV cameras waiting for Steve to appear. Steve started to shake almost uncontrollably. He was wearing a gray blazer, white shirt, and a green bow tie. His black hair was long and flowing. At just 27 years old, he looked handsome and more like a Hollywood celebrity than a Silicon Valley geek. I'm so scared, he repeated. I'm not sure I can talk. I grabbed him firmly in a big hug. Get over it, I said. You are Steve Jobs. You have told us you are about to change the world. Now go out there and do it. The rest is history. End quote. After the Macintosh launch, the movie skips ahead a few years. It explains that the Macintosh was a flop. Only 35,000 units sold in the first few months. Steve Jobs is fired from Apple as a result. Separated from Apple, now we're at another major launch in Steve Jobs' career. Next, computers. Just before the launch, the movie has a confrontation with John Scully and Steve Jobs where they explained what happened to get Steve fired. According to the movie, the Macintosh was a failure, but Steve continues to argue for it. Finally, in the boardroom, the movie implies that John Scully gave the board an ultimatum when he said, quote, All right, well, this guy's out of control. I'm perfectly willing to hand in my resignation tonight, but if you want me to stay, you can't have Steve, end quote. While Steve Jobs was fired from Apple, it wasn't because of the Macintosh launch as indicated in the movie. By April of 1984, the Macintosh sales were at about 50,000. This was behind Apple's predictions of selling 250,000 by the end of the year. But a promising note was that the Macintosh was outselling IBM's first foray into the personal computer market, which they called the PC Junior. That launched about the same time as the Macintosh. By the end of the year, 
the Macintosh had made up the ground, and they sold about 280,000 Macintoshes, a little bit above their projection. IBM, on the other hand, only sold 100,000 PCs. In October of 1984, Apple released an updated Macintosh. This time, it was the 512K version, five times the amount of memory as the first version. The cost for the 512K Macintosh was $3,195. That's about equivalent to $7,500 today. But the Macintosh was still considered to be an expensive toy by a lot of people. It might be fine for tinkering at home, but it just couldn't do what businesses needed. As 1985 rolled around, Apple wanted to repeat what happened in 1984. Just like they did the previous year, Apple launched a massive TV ad during the 1985 Super Bowl between the San Francisco 49ers and the Miami Dolphins. This time, it was a disaster. The ad, named Lemmings, portrayed person after person falling off a cliff, like Lemmings. Instead of the empowerment which Ridley Scott's 1984 ad portrayed, a lot of people considered this ad to be downright insulting. It wasn't a good start. And it only got worse. The ad was announcing the Macintosh office. This was Apple's attempt at matching the success of the original Macintosh inside the office. The idea was to take a number of devices and connect them together. This included Macintosh computers wired together through a local area network with a file server and a printer. It, it was a great idea, but its launch was tripped up right away with the Lemmings ad. Then it hit more problems. After poor sales and plenty of technical issues for both the hardware and the software, the file server never ended up shipping. Compared to the success of the Macintosh, the Macintosh office was a failure. This failure hit Steve Jobs hard, and it was his ultimate demise. In the 2013 Forbes Global CEO Conference, John Scully recounted the events that led up to his firing Steve Jobs. According to John, quote, Steve went into deep depression. He came to me and said, I want to drop the price of the Macintosh and I want to move the advertising, shift a large portion of it away from the Apple II and over to the Mac. I said, Steve, it's not going to make any difference. The reason the Mac isn't selling has nothing to do with the price or with the advertising. If you do that, we risk throwing the company into a loss. And he just totally disagreed with me. And so I said, well, I'm going to go to the board. And he said, I don't believe you'll do it. And I said, watch me. End quote. Steve Jobs' idea was radical, to say the least, and we'll never know if it would have worked. The board sided with John Scully, and Steve Jobs was fired. Back at the next launch in the movie, after the argument between John and Steve in the hallway, Joanna grabs Steve, and on their way back, she explains that while they were at Apple, she won the award for standing up to him. While this is a minor detail, it's actually true. For two consecutive years, in 1981 and 1982, Joanna won, quote, the person who did the best job of standing up to Jobs, end quote, award at Apple. While it may have been a joke, it shows how powerful of an influence Joanna Hoffman was to Steve Jobs. What's not true is that Steve Jobs didn't know about it by the time Joanna mentions it in the movie. He knew about the award the whole time, and he actually liked it. It's also during this conversation in the movie that we find out Steve Jobs' genius plan for next computers. It's not to build a new competitor to Apple. It's to build something that Apple needs so they'll buy him out and bring him back. 
While Steve Jobs never publicly admitted that this was true, it's not a far leap to make. The timeline in the movie makes it seem like right after the first Next launch is when Apple buys the company and Steve Jobs comes back. But in truth, it was almost a decade. Still, just like the movie indicated, the Next launch was yet another failure for Steve Jobs. The Next cube-shaped computer cost $6,500 in 1988. That's a little over $13,000 today, and for your equivalent to thirteen dollars you'd get a massive 25 megahertz processor with about 8 megabytes of RAM and 256 megabytes of storage with a massive 17-inch monitor and an 1120 by 832 grayscale display. Two years later, Next Computers launched an update called the Next Cube for an even $10,000 or almost $19,000 today. It was a Next Cube that was used by a computer scientist by the name of Timothy John Berners-Lee as the very first server for the World Wide Web. Despite this, the incredibly high price of the Next Computers meant almost no one bought them. Yet again, Steve Jobs' computers were an abysmal failure. About a year later, in 1991, Apple CEO John Scully formed an alliance with IBM and Motorola to develop the PowerPC. This would be a pivotal change in how Apple's systems were powered, and it was something that John would later say at a Silicon Valley conference was his greatest mistake as CEO of Apple. In 1993, Apple had a terrible first quarter, and the buck stopped with John. He was forced from Apple after the first quarter and replaced by the COO, Michael Spindler. Michael was the CEO of Apple until Gil Emilio took over on February 2nd, 1996. Apple wasn't doing very well. Their stocks were dropping, and Gil was forced to lay off a third of Apple's employees. Part of those laid off included the team working on an updated version of the Mac OS called Copeland. But they had to have an OS for their computers, so Gill entered discussions with B Incorporated to buy their operating system called BOS, or that's B-E-O-S. They wanted $275 million, and Apple was wanting to spend no more than $200 million, With neither side willing to budge, the deal fell through. So it was finally in November of 1996 when Gil Emilio approached Steve Jobs to discuss Apple purchasing Next. In the movie, Michael Fassbender's version of Steve Jobs says he'd sell to Apple for a billion dollars. That number is not right. After a few months of negotiations, Apple bought Next on February 4th, 1997, for $429 million. That's about $640 million today. Not a billion dollars, but still a good chunk of change. By the second quarter of 1997, Apple's stock hit a 12-year low. Four months after Apple bought Next on June 26, 1997, an anonymous person bought 1.5 million shares of Apple's slumping stocks it would later be revealed that this person was Steve Jobs. He used the money from the next purchase to buy Apple shares. A few days later, on July 4th, Steve met with Apple's board of directors and convinced them to get rid of Gil. Just a few days later, 
Gill resigned, and Steve Jobs became the new CEO of Apple. At this point, the movie skips forward again to the final act. It's a decade after the next launch, in 1998, and we're at another major product launch. This time, it's the iMac. In a scene that's becoming rather familiar throughout the film, again, Steve Jobs gets into arguments with those around him. And again, his anger is centered around his daughter Lisa, but this time it's not at Lisa, it's at Andy Hertzfeld, who paid $20,000 so Lisa could stay in college. Steve is livid, saying he was going to pay, but he was merely making a point, and Andy embarrassed him by paying it first. Although this conversation did not happen before a product launch, the basic gist of this did happen. The movie doesn't mention this because of the jump from the next launch in 1988 to the iMac launch in 1998, but in that decade, Steve had reconciled with Lisa. At least enough that Lisa moved in with Steve and his wife, Laureen Powell, who Steve married in 1991. So by the time 1998 rolled around, Lisa had left the house and was 20 years old going to Harvard. While she was in college, it was common for the two, Steve and Lisa, to go for months at a time without talking over what you and I may think are trivial things. For better or worse, Lisa was a lot like Steve, and when you get two people with very, very strong personalities, you'll get some headbutting. And they did. A lot. It was during one of these spats and long periods of silence that Steve refused to pay for her tuition mostly because he refused to talk to her at all. So Andy Hertzfeld stepped in and paid for Lisa's tuition. But as soon as Steve found out, he repaid Andy. After the college tuition fiasco in the movie, we're back at the theater, and we see something that we haven't talked about much yet. It's Seth Rogen's version of Steve Wozniak, who is in the theater. He's been in the theater for each of the launches, even showing up for the next launch. And throughout the movie, Woz keeps asking Steve Jobs to publicly recognize the Apple II team. According to Woz, the Macintosh wouldn't be what it is without the Apple. Steve Jobs wouldn't be where he is. Apple, as a company, wouldn't be where it is. It comes to a head at this point in the film between Michael Fassbender's Steve Jobs and Seth Rogen's Woz. He pleads with Steve to acknowledge the top guys in the Apple II project. Steve refuses. Then, Waz loses it. In front of everyone in the theater, he goes off on Steve, quote, This whole place was built by Apple II. You were built by Apple II. End quote. Steve replies, quote, Actually, I was destroyed by the Apple II. End quote. He's referencing his getting fired. Shaking his head, Waz turns to leave. I'm tired of being patronized by you, he says. This whole exchange, and really the mere fact that Steve Wozniak was at each product launch, is completely fictional. In fact, since the real Joanna Hoffman left Apple along with Steve Jobs to work with him at Next, there were no Apple employees at the Next computer's launch. And Steve Wozniak certainly didn't have it out with Steve Jobs at the iMac launch. After the movie was released, Bloomberg did an interview with the real Steve Wozniak, In that interview, Woz set some facts straight. Quote, Every scene that I'm in, I wasn't talking to Steve Jobs at those events. I don't even say things like that, and I didn't say them. But they were based on things. For example, there's parts of me saying, Steve, please, please acknowledge the Apple II team all the way for 15 years through the movie. Like, I would do that. 
And all it's based on is there was one shareholders meeting. They didn't mention the Apple II, and the people in the Apple II division were ready to quit. And I don't complain, but on their behalf, I was their only voice. So for them, I called John Scully, not Steve Jobs, end quote. Then Waz continued, explaining his influence on the movie as he met with the film's writer, Aaron Sorkin. Quote, We had meetings on multiple occasions and just talked for hours and hours, anything I could think of saying. Little tiny, tiny bits that were somewhere else kind of got used by him and painted in a different way, a different place. End quote. And Aaron was happy to admit that the film isn't historically accurate. For example, if you'll notice... The similar theme throughout the movie is that Steve Jobs seems to have confrontations with the same few people before every product launch, or at least those product launches in the movie. In an interview with CNET, Aaron spoke about this, quote, Steve Jobs did not, as far as I know, have confrontations with the same six people 40 minutes before every product launch. That's plainly a writer's conceit. What you see is a dramatization of several personal conflicts that he had in his life, and they illustrate something. They give you a picture of something. Are they fair? I do believe they're fair. My conscience is clear. End quote. For his part, the real wise was okay with this form of art. Again, speaking to Bloomberg about his conversations with Aaron Sorkin, Waz said, quote, As a matter of fact, we never talked about the scenes. I never looked at the script after Aaron wrote it. I didn't feel it was appropriate for somebody that's in a movie to look at a script and say, no, it didn't happen this way, because it's his art, end quote. Despite this, and many of the other factual inaccuracies we've covered in the movie, Steve Wozniak was impressed by Steve Jobs' the film. This movie isn't about reality. It's about personality, Woz said in an interview. Maybe everything in the movie didn't happen, but they're all based on things that did happen. Waz continued, quote, When you're close to something, you always see a movie. Every movie I've seen about Apple, they've all got the scenes and people's personalities are wrong. This is not what we said. This is not how it went down. These are not the things we would have done. And after a while, you realize it's the artistic freedom to make a movie that's enjoyable. End quote. Finally, Steve Wozniak summed up the film by saying, quote, This movie is a product. If Steve Jobs were making movies as a product, this is the quality that he would have had. Absolutely. End quote. Oh, and was the Lisa computer named after his daughter? Speaking to the biographer Walter Isaacson, whose biography the movie is based on, Steve Jobs said, quote, Obviously, it was named for my daughter. End quote. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. To learn more about the real Steve Jobs, I would recommend starting with the book that the movie we just talked about was based on. Like the movie, the book, which was written by Walter Isaacson, is called Steve Jobs. It's also deemed the official biography for the Apple co-founder. Another great resource is a book by Brett Schindler and Rick Tetzeli called Becoming Steve Jobs, The Evolution of of a reckless upstart into a visionary leader. And while you're at it, you might as well check out the Bloomberg interview with Steve Wozniak. It's less than 15 minutes and worth your time if you want to learn about the movie from Woz himself. I'll make sure to put a link to that along with all of the other links and music credits on the page for this episode over at the show's home on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. 
Now before we wrap up, one thing you may not know about this show is that it's something I'm doing on my own and in my spare time. So that means, unlike Apple, which could hire Ridley Scott to produce a $1.5 million TV ad for the Super Bowl, there's no big budgets for this show. You won't be seeing a Based on a True Story podcast at this year's Super Bowl. But that's okay, because I have something better than a Ridley Scott ad. I have you. And you are the reason I'm spending my evenings and weekends working on this show. If you're enjoying the show, it would mean a lot if you could share it with maybe a family member or a friend, someone who you think might also enjoy the show. Now, if you can't do that, you can help the iTunes algorithm by leaving a rating and review for the show. Although the movie doesn't cover Apple's iTunes, it is still the largest podcast directory. So when you leave a rating and review for the Based on a True Story podcast, it'll help the show pop up higher when others are looking for something to listen to. And finally, if you want to get in touch with me directly and talk about whether it's Apple, Steve Jobs, the movie, the show, really talk about anything in general, I'd really want to hear from you and feel free to reach out. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Thanks again for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.